following sermon was delivered on July 18th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Pastoral intern Johann Shea delivered this sermon entitled The Question About Eternal Life on Mark 10, 17-22. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I was told of a story by a friend who went to Costco that he was very familiar with this Costco and the staff at Costco was also very familiar with him. But he went in, he just showed the card to, his friend, to the checker. And then he tried to get his stuff from Costco and then went to the checkout counter. But upon arriving at the checkout counter, when he scanned, the, he scanned the card that is on his hand, it says, denied, you're not a member of Costco. And he looked at it, he said, oh, this is a wrong membership card. It was, he said it was very embarrassing for him because he had to return all these things and then go out without any grocery. He got back to his uh, house and he said, I didn't get any grocery because I got the wrong card. In your text this evening, there's a man who came up to the Lord Jesus. He thought he has everything. He has the right credentials. He has the right things to enter the kingdom of heaven. But in our text, we also see that what he thought was actually wrong. He was very familiar with Jewish custom. He was a young man. In another text, he is called the rich young ruler. But he, he, in this text, he wants to make sure, he wants to go to Christ and make sure that he has the right things, that he has been doing or has done what is right for him to enter eternal life. Eternal life is much more than just shopping at a membership shopping club. Because eternal life is we are dealing with something what is for the life that is to come. So this man checking for what, if he is doing the right things, he's actually doing the right thing. And we Christians also should be asking ourselves, are we doing the right things that we may inherit the eternal life, that we may inherit eternal life? So this man is making sure of things, just as a wise investor who sets his money or her money apart, just to make sure his investment will return with profits, he is making sure now that he will inherit eternal life. And this text, as I have mentioned, we, it is recorded in Matthew as well as in Luke, in the two other gospel accounts, which shows that this, important, that this event is very important. This event, as recorded by the three evangelists, is an important event for us to consider a very essential gospel question. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Mark actually, even though he's shorter among the two gospels in terms of chapter, he provided the most detailed account for us, for us to see carefully in detail and evaluate our values, our, our, values, our beliefs, particularly our life. Are we in line with the kingdom of God? Mark's gospel is focused on who Jesus is, who is the character, who is this person, of the, or who is this king of this kingdom, that we may be able to inherit truly eternal life. Thus, Mark's message for us this evening is this. The Lord answers life's important questions, 
and demands your allegiance to him through the gospel. Mark's message for us this evening, he wants us to go home and think about this, is the Lord answers life's important questions and demands our allegiance, your allegiance to him through the gospel. We will look at this text, this section from verses 17 to 22 under three headings. First, verses 17 to 18, the important life question. The important life question in 17 and 18. And then in verses 19 and 20, the important answer to life. The important answer to life. And in verses 21 and 22, the important demand for allegiance. The important demand for allegiance in verses 21 and 22. Mark has 16 chapters or so. By chapter 10, he's already halfway through. In chapter 9, Mark reveals the Savior in transfiguration of who he is in Peter's confession. Who he is? He is indeed the Christ, the living God, the King of this kingdom, whom inheritors, those seeking God, would should be recognized. And because Jesus is very popular by this point, his, his popularity has gone out through the region of Galilee, Judea. People have known him. Oh, there is a mighty miracle worker named Jesus. So that's why in verse 10, verse 1, in chapter 10, verse 1, in the earlier text, he was actually going to Judea, and then he was just hindered. And now Mark tells us he was now setting on out on a journey. He's continuing his journey toward Jerusalem. And more so, he's continuing his journey towards the cross. He's going to fulfill his important task, the task that is set before him. That's why in verse 17, we see that as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him an important question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man ran and kneeled, which is a very important action we must take note because we will see this later on again in the text. His actions of running and kneeling towards the Lord is an action actually of a servant. This young man, he recognizes that the Lord is an important character. He's an important teacher. That's why he called him a good teacher. This combination even suggests a degree of seriousness. Some commentators observe that, that there is a sense of urgency. Not just simple admiration, but admiration is there because he even called the Lord good. So there is a degree of seriousness and urgency in his question. That's why he was really willing to seek the Lord and ask him this important question. Christian, how enthusiastic are you in approaching God, in going after God, in seeking after God? Every day as we wake up for private worship, for family worship, when we meet over the dinner table, when we pray, how enthusiastic are we? Are we like the man who would run and kneel before God? And in public worship, in every Lord's Day, children, how enthusiastic are you to come to the house of God? Because you are part Remember in the, in the earlier text, Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. And now we also see in verse 17, he addresses the Lord as good teacher. It is showing his admiration. Normally, the rabbis are not called good rabbis. So I do not call Dr. Paipa good doctor because it's not normal. Unless I need, uh, I need to ask him a favor or I need him to do me a favor. So we see that the the... The man who 
what was addressing Jesus because he has an idea of who Jesus is and he has a favor to ask. He has a question that he does not have an answer to. And, he, and in his idea of Jesus, he asked him of how to inherit eternal life. And in his question, the Lord stopped him and said, challenges, challenges his description of him. The Lord asked him in verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Some people use this text to say, you see, Jesus is not good. He may have sinned. Well, actually, Jesus is just challenging his notion, the man's notion, because again, he was asking a favor. He was trying to get an answer that he has been struggling or dealing with. Jesus wants us too, as well as he did to this man, to re-examine our definition of goodness. In our shorter catechism, when we ask, what is God? We don't say God is love, but in one of its definitions, we say God is good. Because good encompasses even the concept of love. Jesus wants him to understand the broader concept of what is it to be good. It is a rhetorical question to provoke deeper thought and reflection. He's trying to say, do you know that there's only one that is good? That is why his response is, no one is good except God alone. He was trying to bring the man back to the Deuteronomy, to the Shema, who hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is one. There's only one God. There's only one God that is good. So are you confessing that I am good teacher or am I the God that is good. Christian, you must contemplate on God alone, that he alone is being good. That, and on your contemplation that God is good, this would change your mindset of things that are happening to you, the things that are events in life that challenges you to think, is there a God? Many people ask this question legitimately. Some are just doubting the faith. but. If we have a view, a correct view of God being good, then we see from his character, we can see from his character that he indeed is truly good and not just our own notion or concept of what is good. And this question that Jesus asked him and the statement that Jesus also said, no one is good except God alone, is alluding to this answer. Now, as we look at verse 19, he answers the man, you know the commandments. You're supposed to know this. As a Jew, you are to, supposed to be familiar with this. Because in Jewish tradition, they're very familiar with the term, do this and you shall live. So for him to inherit eternal life, he should have known, or he should know, Jesus is telling him, you know, that you have to obey the commandments. And Jesus tells him in verse 19, you know, the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He gives him the very basic, simple answer. And even in our study, as we go through, as we go through the catechism in Sunday school, the Ten Commandments, we know the face value of them. We know the basic answer. What are the Ten Commandments? What is the second table of the law? And Jesus wants him to understand that by looking at the second table of the law, it is connected to the first one. That the whole commandments has to be obeyed for you to inherit eternal life. 
This is not talking about, Jesus is not talking about being justified by your works, by our works, no. Jesus is saying, as our Shorter Catechism 39 says, what, does, what are the duties required of man? Where is it revealed? Where does God reveal this? In his law, in his word. That is why in, in our morning service, we have the revelation of God's will, wherein we, we see that we are very sinful, that we need the saving grace of God, that in order for us to live in this life, we need God to work in and through us. So God is showing what, Jesus is actually showing him, what is the duty required of him on a shallow level. But in his, in Jesus's explanation or in Jesus's words of, about the commandments, he's actually telling the man there are more than external compliance. Because external compliance, when you obey the commandments, the second table of the law, the first table of the law, the Ten Commandments, it has to have an internal transformation. You are not coerced, you are not supposed to be forced. That is why however we legislate laws in this world, however we say speed limit is this, that, and those, people are not going to obey that unless there is internal transformation in the heart, unless men are convinced Oh, if I run too fast, if I run 80 miles per hour in a 50 miles per hour highway, I'm going to kill people. Unless one is convinced that the Lord is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. External compliance is not enough. There has to be a heart that is oriented toward God, that is not just selfish or for personal gain. Christian, what is your heart? Where is your attitude oriented towards to? When you do God's law, when you do what God commands, when we do church ministry, where is our heart? Is our heart just for the sake of, oh, I'm going to do this because people are going to think I'm holier, or I have some sort of assurance that I am saved, that I'm gonna, going to have eternal life. Mindset, our affections, our mind has to be set on where God is and on God alone. This should be how children, you obey your parents. When your parents tell you to do something, you should not just do it because you're scared or you're going to gain the, the benefits, you're gonna get a gift, you're gonna get a prize. No, you have to do it because your heart is in there. You have to put your heart in it. That is why in verse 20, he answered the Lord Jesus, the teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth and up. Remember, he came to Christ, he came to the Lord because he was struggling with this question. He was wondering, what shall I do? Or what am I still missing to do eternal life? And now the teacher gives me an answer. I've been doing this, so I'm on the right path. I'm on the right direction. He actually claims a clear conscience here. That he has been doing these things. He's sincere that he has been doing all these things. I don't have any evidence in the text to see that we have to doubt that he has been doing this. He probably would, as any Jewish would have been doing in this time. And many Christians in our day, especially in the South, here in the South, in South Carolina, and even other Southern states, we would meet many people who say, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Lord's Day. I fast. I pray. I do these things. We will hear the same answer that the man gave in verse 20. However, we see that sincerity is not enough. 
He's sincere. He's doing all these things. That's why he ran to the Lord. Would someone run to the Lord and kneel before him and ask him this important question? If he was just arrogant, if he was just trying to prove that he's doing all of these things, if his answer was like, oh yeah, I've been doing all these things. No, I do think he is being prompted in his heart by the Holy Spirit to ask, what am I missing? Because there is something really missing. And in his, in his sincerity, we are reminded that sincerity should not be the basis of doing things or knowing things. We have to know facts. Because one can be sincerely wrong. We can be sincere about one thing, and then actually, it's not the real deal. People can be sincerely wrong. That is why God has revealed in his word what he requires of us, what he wants us to know about him, about ourselves, about our state. Because he knows, even though we're sincere, even though Adam and Eve sincerely wanted to follow God, they still failed to do so. And we can also fall in the same temptation. He was hoping that Jesus was going to point him to the right direction, to what is lacking. And before the Lord does that, the Lord wants us also, wants you to think, are you, is what you're doing, what you think you're doing as you obey the commandments, consistent with the revealed word of God? Or are you just doing things that you think you know are right? The Lord wants us to evaluate that salvation is readily available for all men. And he has revealed this in his word. It should not be one weird concept that we just delude ourselves to believe into. And the man, man's action, we should also reflect that we should not suppress the truth. We should not stop our conscience from bugging us. What should I do to inherit eternal life? If you are not satisfied, if things are not done in faith, if you have doubts, come approach. The pastors, the session of Antioch is willing to help. And likewise, in any faith issues, in, if you have any doubts about Christian faith, elders are here to help. But do not suppress, do not just set it aside because by suppressing it, it would just create bigger problems. So now the Lord in verse 21 is ready to give him an answer. The important demand for allegiance, he calls, the Lord respond, responds to him by giving him an answer about allegiance. He is now ready to address the real issue. What, it, what is it that is lacking in this young man? In verse 21, we see, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Notice the Lord's action. The Savior's action, he was sensitive to the man's dilemma. He felt a love for him. Some translations would put it, Jesus fell in love with him. Not in an emotionally sexual way, but Jesus showed his compassion on this man. He said, oh, I love this man, and I'm going to tell him the truth. I'm not going to prevent truth from him. This should remind us that whenever a brother errs or a sister errs in the church, whenever there's an error to correct, it must be done in the context of love. Truth must be done in the context of love. 
We must speak and do truth in the context of love. So Jesus felt a love for him. The Lord exemplified speaking the truth with love. And now we see this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is a message of love and also truth. The gospel directs us to what is it to love man and God alone. Earlier in verse 20, I didn't deal much, or verse 19, I didn't deal much with the, with the do not defraud sentence or statement. Well, now in verse 20, I do believe, or 21, I do believe that Jesus intentionally withheld the 10th commandment, do not covet. Do not defraud would be more of the 8th commandment, and some commentaries even believe it alludes to the 9th or the 10th commandment, do not defraud. So I do believe that Jesus, in verse 19, intentionally withheld do not covet or the 10th commandment for a very important reason because he wants now to show the man that you are lacking one thing. Yes, you're obeying 6, 7, 8, 9, 5. But you're lacking one thing. He now addresses the nature of covetousness. Jesus is now ready to tell him what is it that you're lacking. In general, we know it is coveting. He was a man. He was having many things. So now Jesus is going to address his problem, what is lacking with him. Thomas Watson, in his exposition of the Ten Commandments, he said, covetousness is a mother sin. It is a radical vice. So if you're covetous, if one is covetous, he technically violates one to nine commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. Why? Because by being covetous, you have a different God. God is not your God. If you have been hearing sermons from Dr. Piper from 1 Timothy about godliness, covetousness is a problem. It is anti-godliness. It's a character which we must not have as Christians, as a church. Because covetousness is having a different God and not the God of the Bible. Being covetousness is saying, who is your God? Who do you worship? Second commandment. It is profaning God's name. Whenever we meet, whenever the church calls for worship, we are saying, oh, I'm just keeping things to myself. Just keeping my possessions to myself. Covetousness violates the fourth commandment, Sabbath worship. Oh, I'm just going to keep the day for myself. I'm just going to give God an hour, a morning worship, or probably an evening worship. I'm not, then the rest of the day, I'm going to do whatever I want. Covetousness is not honoring authorities. It's not honoring God who gives authorities. Covetousness is murdering, killing things, Mur and so on and so forth. So that's why I think Thomas Watson is right, that it is a mother sin. That is what he lacked, the 10th commandment, which inevitably voided his answer in verse 20, that he kept all of these things. He actually does not keep anything. That is why it is bugging him, it is bothering him, the question of eternal life. Because the, the kingdom of God demands that you give up your life, a life that you could enjoy in this, in this world. The gospel tells you, you're just a pilgrim. You're traveling in this world. This is not your world. This is not our own. This 
is just a temporary place. And the Lord telling him, one thing you lack, and you must go and sell all your possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasures in heaven. The Lord is telling him, compare your original question to my answer. You're asking about eternal life, the life in eternity. And now I'm telling you that life in eternity requires everything that you love here in this earth to be removed. That you must love God above all else, that you must sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then you can come and follow me. The gospel demands so big because the benefits, the glory of heaven, the blessing then the riches of king, the kingdom of heaven far surpasses anything this world can give. Even if we combine all the world riches, world's riches, all the eight wonders of the world, it cannot match up the beauty, glory, and majesty of God. That is why God is asking, give it up, come, and follow me. Go and sell all you possess. You shall have treasure in heaven. Dr. Piper, in the message this morning, he also said this. The Lord in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon of the Mount, he said, where your heart is, there your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do you have yet to give up, friends, brothers and sisters? Do you still have things that you cling on, that you hold on, that have not yet surrendered, that, have, that are still considered your gods, our gods, and not having God as our God? And Thomas Watson, very practical Puritan author, he said, seek spiritual things, seek spiritual and heavenly blessings so that you would not be covetous. He said the solution to covetousness is to seek and aim for heavenly blessings. And this important demand for allegiance answers the questions to the question that the man posed. We see a failed delivery in verse 22. But at these words, his face fell. This word here literally means, means his face turned gloom from smiley, bright, shining face to gloomy. Remember, he was asking the Lord, and then the Lord said, oh, I'm going to give you the answer. And his face would probably be, oh, I'm going to hear the answer. And now the Lord tells him, this is the answer to your question. Oh, his face turned gloomed. And, his, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He now realizes what, what, is his lacking? What is his heart's question that is prompting him to think? He now realizes in this dramatic climax, Mark writes for us, it reveals where his values is. Christian, the gospel message of Christ reveals to us, reveals our hearts, opens our hearts. Whenever the word is preached, it should pierce our hearts and open it like an open heart surgery. Take it out and evaluate. What is it? that I value most. Where is my treasure? Where is my heart? Remember this man owned so much and he said, oh, so this is what I have been missing. It would have been a good ending if he said, okay, I'm gonna do it. But there's a, there's a, there's a purpose why he turned away. Because it is for us to think, are we also going to turn away from 
the glory, the rich blessing that heaven has to offer, eternal life has to offer over temporal things that are going to pass away, where moths and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. Are we going to trade heavenly blessing over it? And this text actually just to address a, a important issue, some or Roman Catholic Church in the medieval ages uses this as proof text to say, oh, you have to give up your life. You have to give everything. You have to live a monastic life in order for you to inherit eternal life. That is why there are the Franciscans and the Dominican orders wherein they emphasize so much on selling everything. You don't have to own anything at all, which is weird because if you don't own anything, then what are you going to be wearing? What are you going to be eating? How are you going to be fed? Things like that. So I do think that the text is not about, the text you should know that it is not about evangelical poverty. That to inherit eternal life, you must sell everything. But rather, Jesus is saying, where is your value? Where is your treasure? Are you going to give up something when God tells you to give it up? When it's a sin, definitely you have to give it up. But what if it is just something neutral? God tells you, you have to use your beautiful car now to pick up rowdy children who's going to mess up your car, who's going to eat all these biscuits and crackers inside your vehicle. You have to clean it. No. Are you going to say, no, I'm not going to pick up those children for Sunday school because they are going to mess up my car. These are the important questions the Lord asks us if we have to give, if we have indeed given up our lives for him. Material things, God blesses us with these things. These are good things. We have prayed about it earlier. We have said, thank you, Lord, for giving us good things. Thank you for giving us good car, good place to stay, a good uh, house to stay, a good car to drive us back and forth anywhere. But material things are supposed to be service for God. These are to be our slaves, not our masters. Material things are not supposed to be something that dictates us what we are to do. Have you exchanged earthly blessing for the rich heavenly blessing that is described for us in Ephesians 1? How God richly saved us. How it's salvation, which is rich and free, but very rich. How are we trading it for material things? Are material things becoming an obstacle for your relationship with God? The gospel gives us the glory, the glorious Savior for us to see. He wants the evangelist wants us to see who is Jesus. Can you, would you be able to trade everything for him? Emphatically, yes. Because he has done everything for us. Everything that we need. Every, the biggest problem we have, Jesus paid it all. The life to come is not like just membership shopping. Where my friend thought he was a member of Costco or he had this membership card. And then he can just leave his stuff and come back the next day. Eternal life, eternal eternity is something serious. We miss it, it's that, that's it. We passed away from this life not knowing the Lord, that's it. No second chances, no such thing as a purgatory for us to make up. There is no left behind wherein we could still be saved from eternal damnation. Man has to ask this right question. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? It's an important question. And the Lord, because the Lord gives us a response. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, His revealed will. We must follow it. 
will because he demands full allegiance. That's why the message Mark has for us is the Lord answers life's important questions and demands your allegiance to him through the gospel. It is costly to follow Christ because it requires you to deny yourself. You must not confuse, have confused values, earthly love over the love, for the love of God. We must follow the Lord because he is able to bless us. He loves, he loves to bless his people. That's why in the earlier text we read earlier in verses 13 to 16, he blessed the children. The children, children, you don't have actually anything. At best, you have a bank account. You don't have assets or anything. And this is what we should take note, brothers and sisters. We, as Christians, we are poor. We have nothing unless God has given, his, given it to us. We must be good stewards of his blessing, material or spiritual. Because material things are incomparable to Christ. Christ, who himself gave up everything, who gave up the pleasures of heaven just to come down, just to be humiliated, brothers and sisters. Give up your life for Christ. If there are people who are here, young children are listening to the recording and you have not known Christ, known him, know him, because this is the glorious Savior. There is an important question and he gives the answer and he demands allegiance to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.